0: Welcome to the ACC podcast. We're honored that you took some time out of your day to listen to one of our weekly messages. We hope that these messages bring you closer to Jesus, strengthen your faith, and deepen your understanding about the Bible. If you're thinking of attending ACC, we're currently holding one service at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. You can visit our website for more information. That's anacorteschristian.church. That's A-N-A c-o-r-t-e-s christian dot church. You can also visit our website if you have any questions about ACC, like our core beliefs, where we are located, or if you'd like to get in contact with us, we would love to hear from you. So, whether you're sitting, driving, or exercising, thanks for tuning in. Let's dive into the Bible together.
1: gonna get into the book of James we've only got two left we're almost done and we're in chapter five and so I kind of want to warn you um, this section that we're in going into chapter five it is it is harsh like it is a rebuke it's a harsh rebuke it's it's the second of two rebukes and this one is directed towards rich people a hey, rich people those who are rich however before we get into it this is really important there's There's an important contextual detail here that will completely change the way you read this passage. And it's this. James is not writing this letter to rich people, at least to these rich people that he has in mind. Now, I realize that sounds confusing because I just said that this is a harsh rebuke to rich people. And then I just said, James is not writing this to rich people. It sounds like a contradiction. But it's actually not because almost all the commentaries agree that what James is actually doing here is standing with and agreeing with and groaning with the plight of his audience of refugees who are suffering exploitation, oppression, and uh, being unjustly dragged into lawsuits by those in the wealthy class. We learned about this a bit in chapter two, if, we, if you recall, because the danger is that James's audience are starting to try to be like that upper wealthy class in the way that they're showing favoritism to those, maybe to those who are well-dressed and they have status symbols and they say, oh, you come sit at the place of honor, whereas this person with shabby clothes over here, oh, no, no, you're going to sit at my footstool, you know, like the, like the servant and, and, and he's saying, hey, isn't it the rich who are exploiting you? Isn't it the rich who are dragging you into court and oppressing you? Don't be like that, right? And, and so now we're kind of returning to that a little bit. And, and James is reciting a lot of Old Testament scriptures, a lot of Old Testament scriptures about God's judgment against the wealthy, unjust rich. And the reason this is so important is this. The judgment of God, the judgment of God on the rich is not intended to scare his audience into um, fearful submission. No, it's the opposite. God's judgment in this passage is meant to encourage his audience. It's meant to reassure his audience. God sees you. He stands with you. Let me remind you of the judgment that is to come, the justice that is to come. See, for those who suffer at the hands of the powerful, the idea of God as judge is not offensive. It is a hope to hold on to. And without this hope, it's impossible for us to respond properly when we are treated with injustice. How is James going to charge his audience to respond? Is he going to call them to outrage, to vengeance, to take up the sword, to a strategy? No, you've got to learn how to play the game. You've got, you know, play, show favoritism, be judgmental, sit at this spot, you sit at this spot. No, he calls them to patience, a certain kind of patience. Knowing that the Lord is coming soon, the judge is knocking at the door, your reward is near, and above all, he says to so hold on to this. Hold on to this truth. God is full of compassion and mercy. Don't forget that. So put yourself in the place of James's audience for a moment, and maybe you can identify with this. Because I don't know about you, but I've been in a position where I desperately felt the need to prove myself to someone who really looked down at me. Have you ever felt that way? So in this case, you have probably a lot of people who were well-established in their communities, well-respected, maybe well-off financially or monetarily, whatever. And uh, they joined the church. They had an encounter with Jesus. They became Christ followers. And then all of a sudden that church comes under persecution and Christianity is outlawed and they are literally hunting people down and dragging them out of house churches and putting them in prison and maybe even to death. And so the church disperses and they're forced to flee to the outside Gentile nations who tend to look at Jews and the nickname that is often coined is dogs. And so here you are trying to remake a life for yourself. And in that culture, you might get work from someone, but they would probably look down at you. And here you are. You, you were established. You were someone who was respected. You are smart. You know things. You are qualified. But no matter what you say or do, they constantly treat you like dirt. Sometimes you go without pay. You don't even get your wages for a job well done. Anytime something goes wrong or something's broken, you're the guy on the bottom, so you're to blame. You're the one that gets dragged into court or prison if you can't pay restitution for the damages. This is what they're going through. Can you imagine what that would feel like? What would be going on in your heart? What would be your response? Envy? Jealousy? Anger? Hatred? I'm better than this. You know? How would you respond? Maybe you've been in a situation something like that. Can you identify with those feelings? The bigger question is then, how does one not respond the wrong way? How does James bring back his suffering church into conformity with likeness, To have a heart like his, as our video series has put it. So, James has two motives here. One, he wants to encourage those who are in this situation by pointing at the rich and reminding his audience what's coming for them. Two, it's not that easy. By doing so, he is also warning the church about the dangers of wealth. And this is important wealth, wealth is morally neutral, wealth is neither good nor bad. Wealthy people are not bad people just because they have wealth, but wealth poses certain dangers. And it poses dangers to those who have it, and it poses dangers to those who don't have it. And that's what we're struggling with here. So let's read James 5, 1 through 11. If you haven't noticed already, I pretty much preached the whole sermon there in the nutshell version. We're going to break it down a little bit, but there is a lot here. And, um, you know, I'm going to try not to go too long, but there's a lot of content. So you may want to take some notes. James 5, 1 through 11. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. These are strong words here. They denote howling uncontrollably in agony. Ooh, that's fun. Your wealth has rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, note that we are now switching audiences. On the basis of this judgment that is coming, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the Precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers and sisters, do not complain or the word is grumble to one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Heavenly Father, bring this truth home to us. Help us to see what you're saying here, but also help us to have the courage to identify where it reveals the dangers of wealth in our lives, whether we are those who have it or those who don't. And, of course, there's plenty of opinions on that, Lord, but but Holy Spirit, most of all, uh, reveal to us, your heart for us, the truth of the gospel that gives the power of endurance and patience. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so with this judgment, there is a coming misery. Why are they miserable? Because they're going to suffer loss. And if you notice, there's three kinds of wealth that are described here. He talks about the kind of wealth that rots or spoils, an abundance of of goods like like a harvest of grain. That was one kind of wealth. It will rot, he says. The second is garments, clothing and what they represent. We talked about this back in chapter 2, how a person's garment was a status symbol in that culture. It was their sign of wealth. It actually oftentimes had money sewn into its uh, uh, patches as an inheritance. This makes so much more sense out of so many Bible passages that frequently reference garments. And so this status symbol What would determine where your host seats you at the table when you walk in the door is going to wither away. It's going to be moth-eaten. Your legacy, your inheritance, your status, everything. And lastly, gold and silver is going to be corroded, and there's a point behind that because gold and silver doesn't rust. Right? And so the point is that even your most secure investment is going to corrode and fade away. And so the imagery, which is consistent with the rest of the Bible's depictions of future judgment, is that there is a correlation between the fate of what we put our identity in and ourselves. Okay? In other words... If it is going to be destroyed, and that is what our hope is in, we are going to experience that loss as personal destruction. Okay, if that's where our hope is rooted, if that's what our identity is rooted in. It says, Their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. I think it's a vivid picture. I think it's somewhat metaphorical, but no less severe. Um, When these fragile sources of tangible, perishable abundance, status, name and identity, symbols, and monetary treasures and investments are stripped away, the degree to which you have placed your hope and confidence in these things will probably correlate with the degree to which you experience suffering. And the degree to which you suffer loss will be a witness against you in that judgment." So the summary is, there is a misery and suffering coming to those who root their identity, hope, and security in any kind of worldly wealth because when it crumbles away, you will crumble as well, at least metaphorically speaking, because you're going to lose everything that gave you a reason to live. And so there's a portrait in view here of these rich people. Who are these people? What is their goal? What do they do? What what does this look like? And number one, they live with a worldly perspective, not an eternal one. You've hoarded wealth in the context of the time, the last days, the days after Christ was raised from the dead, guaranteeing the future inheritance that is to come along with the judgment. This is not the time to be living as if there is no end point to this present age. They live as if there is no eternity, resurrection, reward, etc. If these things aren't true, then hoarding wealth in this life makes perfect sense. But if these things, if these are indeed the last days, then they don't make any sense whatsoever. The goal of this lifestyle is to live in luxury and self-indulgence, he says. Everything I do is moving towards increasing luxury and comfort and self-indulgence. The means by which they accomplish this goal is hoarding wealth, to gather as much as I can. And the modality, what that actually looks like in this picture, is wealth that is gained by injustice, or at least coupled with injustice, cheating workers out of their wages, condemning and murdering the righteous who do not oppose them. Now, we, we could say those who struggle with wealth, we could say, well, most of our bosses don't, don't kill the people that, you know, they're, they're treating this, this way. But there is a passage in Leviticus that connects the withholding of a person's wages to the, the taking away of their life, the right to eat. And in fact, I'm going to quote a couple passages in this sermon. I hope that, that this doesn't get under anybody's skin from the apocryphal books of the Bible because I think I had like an Anglican commentary or something like that. But there's a book in, there's a, there's a passage in um, the book Sirach, which is uh, if you're a Catholic, there's some, you know, it's not in the Protestant Bible. But it says this, and this is, this is written prior to Christ. So it says, to take away a neighbor's living is to commit murder. To deprive an employee of wages is to shed blood. Our governing authorities would do well to take that to heart, if it's true. To rob an employee of their due wages is to shed blood. What is this judgment then? It's a consistent picture throughout the Bible, like a purging fire that will sweep through and renew and replenish the earth, even as it purges it and makes it God's kingdom once and for all. Everything that doesn't belong or is contrary to his kingdom will be destroyed. And the more we attach ourselves to something that will burn, the more we will experience that burn as well. And even though that sounds kind of scary and painful, for some people that sounds freeing. To be liberated once and for all from the attachments that keep holding me back and tempting me from being who I really am in Christ. But for those whose identity is laid up with the things that are destroyed, they will experience this as destruction. That's why Jesus says that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. A camel is encumbered with things. There's a lot added to it that just doesn't fit into God's kingdom, and it's going to be painful if you're going to try to squeeze through there. Look, he says, the pay that you have withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. The blood of Abel crying out from the ground. The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah reaching God's ears. The wealthy in this case are associated with oppression against those perceived to be lower. It is a sense of privilege that doesn't think too much about taking advantage of others for personal gain, deriving a sense of worth by contrasting their worth with others. The dogs, those who sit at the lower place at the table. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Those who fatten themselves off the exploitation of the vulnerable may appear to be on top in the world's eyes, but when the veil is removed, they are like the fattened cow being prepared for a feast. And so there is a litmus test here. Though this is primarily meant to encourage his audience, there is a warning for us. Do you invest your worldly abundance, position, and treasures in things that are eternal? Or are these things primarily pointed in the direction of luxury and self-indulgence? Do you wake up and commit your day to the Lord in any way, shape, or form, or is the first action to swipe on your phone and look at those stock widgets and figure out what's going on? with your investments? Are the decisions in your life primarily motivated by comfort and the avoidance of inconvenience? Are you preoccupied with hoarding wealth, whether it is those wonderful, perishable things that we like to have in our pantries or status and position or gold and silver, the things that we think are secure? The witness against us is the degree of personal destruction we experience with the destruction of our stuff. Okay, so maybe this is the litmus test. Is it possible that in your pursuit of these things, oh, excuse me, will we experience, if you think about experiencing the loss of of our stuff, uh, the litmus test is the degree to which we experience that as suffering, as, as of course it's gonna be suffering, but as our own agony and destruction. How attached are we really? And this is probably a hard one to answer, but for those who have you know, risen to a position, is it possible that there is an outcry against you? Is there unjust treatment or payment that is kind of on your resume that is an outcry that has reached the Lord of armies. Is there an outcry? Now, I have to admit that um, I kept finding myself looking for ways to water down the terror of this passage. But James's picture of judgment against the rich is explicitly vivid. Not because you just have wealth, that's, that's not bad, but the portrait that's in mind. It's a scary one. He wants us to flee from the dangers of wealth that are present for those who have it. But not only that, he also wants us to flee from the dangers of wealth that are present for those who don't have it. And this is what we kind of get a hint at in his response. James could say, instead of be patient, he could say, be outraged. He could say, you're a victim. This is not justice. You need to get on Twitter and claim your your victim mentality, listen to the accolades of those who will now give you a platform and condemn those people and become the oppressor. We live in a victimocracy today. Victimhood is championed in every way, shape, and form. James doesn't say to do that. He doesn't claim claim your victimhood and rise up, no. And he doesn't say to develop a strategy. You're in a new culture now. You're gonna have to play with the big dogs. You're gonna have to rise up again. Now you're the one who needs to eliminate the competition. You're the one who needs to create an outcry. You're the one who needs to rise up and play the game and start showing favoritism at the table and so on. No, he doesn't say to do that. No, he says patience. But what is that? It's not a passive patience. It involves active belief and trust. Instead of fattening our hearts, strengthen our hearts. Live with an external, or excuse me, live with an eternal perspective, number one. Live with an eternal perspective. The Lord's coming is near. Believing that God is a God of abundance, even when it doesn't look like it, like the farmer waiting for the rains and the harvest, God will be faithful to fulfill his promises. We have to stand on that. Just as he is faithful to bring the seasons every year, he will bring your reward if you are in Christ, and he will bring justice. Two, do not grumble towards one another. Grumbling is not exactly the same as groaning or complaining. Grumbling is a complaining that has an object in its crosshairs. Grumbling against someone. Grumbling for the purpose of welling up vengeance from within. Anger and animosity. Do not grumble, he says. That was number two. Number one was live with an eternal perspective not grumbling. Three, believe in judgment as good news. Brothers and sisters, do not complain, grumble about one another, so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Resist the urge and instead rest in the assurance that there will be justice. You don't have to grumble. James points to Job as an example. And I'm just going to recite because I couldn't really say it better. Um, Something William Barclay wrote. He says this. He says, patience, in English, is far too passive a word. There is a sense in which Job was anything but patient. As we read the tremendous drama of Job's life, we see him passionately resenting what has happened to him passionately questioning the conventional arguments of his so-called friends, passionately agonizing over the terrible thought that God might have forsaken him, as opposed to believing God is compassionate and merciful. Few have spoken such passionate words as he did. But the great fact about Job is that in spite of all the agonizing questionings which tore at his heart, he never lost faith in God. For I know my Redeemer lives, he said. Job's is no unquestioning submission. He struggled and questioned and sometimes even defied, but the flame of his faith was never extinguished. There may be a faith which never complained or questioned, but still greater is the faith which was tortured by questions and still believed. It was the faith which held on grimly that came out on the other side, for the Lord has blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. That was Job 42. There will be moments in life when we think that God has forgotten, but if we cling to the remnants of faith, at the end we too shall see God as very kind, compassionate, and merciful. Number four, finally, it all comes down to one fundamental question What do you believe about God? Again, this is what we need for patience, for endurance, right? One is to live with an eternal perspective. Two is to not grumble towards one another. Three is to believe in judgment as good news and to endure until then. And finally, what do we believe about God? The Lord is compassionate and merciful. What does that mean? It all hinges on this. Is he or not? What assurance do we have in the midst of difficulty that God is compassionate and merciful? What is compassion? To understand, to enter into, to respond to the plight of another person. In his compassion, Jesus, who owns it all, every kernel of grain ever produced, the very status and position Of God Himself and all the gold and silver that ever existed, Jesus emptied Himself of it all for a time and became poor for a while so that through His poverty you and I might become rich. He entered into our suffering willingly, though He had been the guy on top. That's compassion. That's compassion. That's compassion in the flesh. And in his mercy, he took the judgment and died the death we should have died so that you and I could receive new life and forgiveness of sins freely as a gift to be received by faith. That's mercy. Is he compassionate? Is he merciful? Do we forget this? James says, You have murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. The fact that he didn't resist showed that Jesus was righteous. Jesus is the righteous one. And we killed him. This is pretty fascinating. There's a book um, called The Wisdom of Solomon. And it, this this would have been written about a century or so before Christ. So with that in mind, listen to what is described here. It's talking about what happens when we come face to face with with someone who is more righteous than ourselves. He who professes to have knowledge of God and calls himself a child of the Lord. Oh, that sounds familiar. He became to us a reproof of our thoughts. Oh, He puts us in our place, we who think we're so high. The very sight of him is a burden to us because his manner of life is unlike that of any others and his ways are strange. We are considered by him as something base and he avoids our ways as unclean. I've got a lot of stories about Pharisees in mind right here. He calls the last end of the righteous happy. And boasts that God is his father. Whoa. Let us see if his words are true. Let us test what will happen at the end of his life. Will he resist? For if the righteous man is God's child, he will help him. And will deliver him from the hand of his adversaries. Let us test him and insult with, with insult and torture so that we may find out how gentle he is and make trial of his forbearance. Let us condemn him to a shameful death, for according to what he says, he will be protected. This was written about a century before Jesus. And all of these things happened pretty much by the book. Jesus claimed God as his father, His righteousness, his teaching confounded, his authority confounded the authority of the authorities and the wisdom of the authorities. And he claimed that God would help him and that if they destroyed this temple, meaning his own body, he would rise three days later. He would rebuild it. And it was true. You've murdered the righteous one who does not resist you But it's also revealing. Our worldly pursuits make us blind so that when someone truly righteous appears, they're annoying. Their light reveals the truth behind our fancy garments and shows our fattened hearts. Jesus' forbearance was unwavering and his righteousness endured even in the face of torture and shameful death. But on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. The Father had, in fact, protected or vindicated the righteous Son. Now, why am I saying all this? Because it is important the degree to which you believe in the compassion and mercy of God in the face of the dangers of wealth. Some might say, oh, I believe in Jesus, he was a good moral teacher, a good moral example. I believe in the philosophy of Jesus. I believe in what Jesus represents. But underneath that, to say that Jesus literally died and was raised from my sins, that Jesus was literally resurrected from the dead, nah, that's you know, that's for those radicals. That's what those hyper conservatives or fundamentalists think, right? But let me ask you what does a good moral example or profound philosophy, really give you to fortify you against the dangers of wealth. When you, who have a name and a status, experience incredible loss, and you're the one being treated like dirt, you're the one feeling envy and jealousy and resentment, what do you have when suffering hits, when the judgment comes? What do you have? Because when your Job moment comes, how firmly can you bank on the claim that God is full of compassion and mercy versus having profoundly experienced his compassion and his mercy? What will get you through? Have you opened your heart up to Jesus? Have you received his compassion and your mercy? Has it rocked you to the core? Has it shaken you up? The degree of our own depravity and sin, and the degree of his incredible love that would empty himself of all the wealth in the world for you to enter into your suffering and die at our own hands for your forgiveness. Compassion to the fullest, mercy in its final and ultimate form, freely given. That's the only thing, the experience of the truth of his compassion and mercy that gives us patient endurance so that the dangers of wealth, whether we have it or not, do not consume us. With that in mind, I've got a few action steps, but I think first of all, just in that moment, I think we should take communion together. So I want you to get, if you are a Christ follower, if if you've received this gift, I want you to take the bread and the cup in your hands. And even though this is cheap plastic and a wafer that's kind of styrofoamy, <clears throat> what it represents is a tangible reminder of the truth of God's compassion and mercy. And if you don't have that truth, if you don't believe that, you won't make it. You won't make it through. You'll be consumed with anger and jealousy. You'll be consumed with loss and destruction. This is the free gift given to you that proves it. God loves you. And like a farmer waiting patiently for the rains to come, not sure if there's going to be a drought, not sure if the signs are that there's going to be desolation or or that you're going to have a harvest in the midst of this time of hunger. This is what assures us that his coming is real and there will be abundance. There will be judgment and justice. Patiently endure because of this, Jesus' body and blood given for you on the cross. Thanks again
0: for joining us today. If you've accepted Christ or have questions about having a relationship with Jesus, we would love to hear from you. Call us at 360-293-3729 or visit our website anytime. Have a great week, and remember, you are loved by us and by Jesus.